Hey, John, Nick Kristoff in the New York Times thinks Biden can save the white working class. What do you think? I think it's worth exploring. Welcome to Care Talk, your contemporary home for incisive debate about healthcare, business, and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. Well, John, I know how you spent your Valentine's Day weekend reading the New York Times, and I know you read the article by Nick Kristoff called, Can Biden Save Americans Like My Old Pal Mike? What is that article about? Well, David, for those of you who don't read on the weekends, um, Nick Kristoff had a, a really fascinating article, he, really poignantly painful about a classmate or his neighbor who had a rough time getting and keeping a working class job, ended up living on the streets. And I, it, was a, it was a strangely introspective article for the reliably liberal New York Times, but I, I, thought, I thought quite poignant and made a lot of really good points. But you as a predictable liberal critic probably had problems with it. Well, it's a good article, John. Uh, it was well-written, and I think you always get something out of seeing uh, personal experience. You know, he tied it in with his friend who had problems while he was growing up and then actually ended up, you know, dying at age 55 on the streets uh, from a heart attack and used that as a, as a taking-off point for uh, whether Joe Biden could actually help people like that. So it has strengths because it's, you know, it's very specific and there's a lot of people like his friend, Mike, and I think there's some strengths in there, but it has some limitations as well. John and I will, I'll defend the liberals. You know, one of the things Christoph said was that, uh, you know, like m many liberals with the university education, reliable paycheck, you know, he, he found maybe he was too scornful of labor, too enthusiastic about international trade and too glib about creative destruction. And he was too heartless about its toll. So that, you know, that's his, that's his sort of self-loathing uh, approach. And I don't, I, I'm not a self-loather, John. So, uh, you know, maybe that, that's his, maybe he needs to see, be a, in therapy. Well, no, I, I, look, I don't think that we're honest about the down, th there's a tremendous amount of upside to capitalism. It's the greatest job and career creation vehicle the world has ever seen. But there is no question that we also have in the last 20 years, sort of ignored the ugly downside that citizen Trump built up on the resentment of rural uh, and undereducated white. But let's be honest, David, they have been paying the price for a lot of other people's uh, successes. You've seen job erosion. You've seen manufacturing jobs leave. You've seen industries get unwound. You've seen, as Ross Pro pointed out, the great sucking sound of jobs to places like in Asia and Latin America. And that costs not just measured in economics, but in healthcare. And you see it in the in the painful story of Nick's friend Mike, who didn't finish high school, came from an abusive household, and had a hard time keeping a job, keeping his family, and staying sober, but clearly, as as reported in the article, had a heart of gold. And it makes you really wonder whether we should be focusing a little bit more on the implications of not having a policy around the things that that are that are basically the prices we pay for a growing economy. So it sounds like he's gotten around to reading Hillbilly Elegy and putting his own spin on it. Now, there's a, certainly a lot of parts to that about, you know, despair and so on. I think he goes a little too far. So he talks about, you know, mental illness caused by poverty. Well, 
you know, sure, uh, there's extra stresses on on people who are who are poor uh, from mental illness. Certainly, mental illness causes poverty because it's hard to work if you don't have a, a job. You know, he gives his example of his friend uh, Mike. I have a very close friend uh, who met a similar, uh, very unfortunate fate, and he actually went to a you know he he was raised with a, a functional home, and he. He went to a top 10 law school, had plenty of supports, actually had had funds. He still ended up on the street because mental illness is is very strong and it's going to overcome, you know, what Christoph's uh, thing about the, the scandal of not having enough uh, treatment for for mental illness. You know, mental illness is going to grab a hold of you at every level, John, and a lot of it is is relative. So there's people, you know, who are a little more successful than you and their own kids are screwed up because they have affluenza. You know, you could look at it at all different uh, different areas. So I thought that was overstated. You're being a little harsh on it. I, I I would agree with you that mental illness is everywhere, and it, it affects every class, every race, every gender. Um, but there is no question if you j- just measure it, Dave. You look at the level of trauma that folks who are poor, who can't find a job, who are trying to live in poverty and emerge, the level of stress they have, and how it directly ties to heart disease, hypertension. Uh, depression and stress. I, I I don't think you can, you shouldn't reject it because it's an incomplete point. You can reject it because that's what you're doing. But I I I think it's it's just may have been more imprecisely drawn. But there's no question that if you can't get a job, you're not you you, you can't you can't beat your addiction, and you've got a family that that's going to affect your mental health. John, you know, you pointed out that citizen Trump, and maybe we won't call him that for so long if he gets stripped of his citizenship uh, eventually, since he he didn't have the other punishments uh, assigned to him yet. But if you look at what he did, you know, certainly what he and his uh, cronies have done is recognize the ability to uh, leverage the resentments of this uh, class of people that you're that you're talking about. But I don't think it's the right thing to do. And I think that if you look at you know who's was he listening to them about trade policy and so on? No, I would say that. Trade is actually not the cause of job loss. I think you're seeing it's actually really technology and that what the Republicans had done again by turning against free trade was terrible. And it's been so so successful that they basically forced the Democrats along with it. Case in point, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which we abandoned and Obama had to abandon it and Biden's had to stay away from it as well. We're just going in the wrong direction. We're compound. We're we're learning the wrong lessons from the, the suffering that we see. Well, I, at least you're admitting to the suffering, but but let's think about maybe what what is I think embedded in Nick's article, but he probably didn't want to state it this way. Look at how in um, in Europe there are actually shock absorbers for people who lose jobs um, to keep their wages. Look at how uh, um, Germany and some of the Nordic countries have handled um, basically having kind of a wage gap support during the pandemic so they don't have everybody who works in a restaurant losing their job, losing their income, and going on the rolls. There, there are some shock absorbers built into the system. I do think that uh, universal health care matters and access to local primary care matters. I mean, there, there are some solutions in there where, for example, Europe, the, 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 the European countries have actually built in effectively social policy shock absorbers that can help uh, individuals and families and communities navigate the dislocations that are natural. I don't think you have to be anti-trade to be honest about the cost of trade in some of these communities. John, I think that one of the things that 
Christoph didn't say specifically, but that I endorse is that empathy is an important part of policy and recognizing that people have challenges and you shouldn't uh, have harsh punishments on them is a good idea. The European example, I think, is too much coddling. And in fact, there is something to the kind of the American rugged individualism uh, approach and ensuring a quality of opportunity. So for example, in Europe, they don't do a very good job of absorbing immigrants. One of the reasons is that they load them up with social services. They never really get integrated into the economy. What we're trying to do here, and I think what you're actually seeing in the US is actually a shift toward uh, multi-ethnic democracy. And that's pretty hard and it's being resisted mostly by uh, the Republican party. But what we should actually have is more immigration uh, because I think the immigrants are actually people that, yeah, they have these challenges as well. But guess what? They go and they they work hard and set a good example. And we should have more democracy, too, so that we don't have the Senate representing uh, people they shouldn't. And we should have D.C. statehood, John. That's my number one suggestion here. The whole point of this of this of this conversation was what we agree and disagree with Nick Kristoff on. Now you're throwing your own immigra- immigration and democracy agenda at it. Can you just stay on point? What do you think he got wrong? Well, he didn't talk about Europe. He knows to stay away from that one. You know, so I think that one thing that he got wrong was this big focus on how we needed to have a big expansion of kind of, you know, mental health care and drug treatment programs. I think that's you're you're wasting money there. So John on drug treatment programs in particular, to give something that we know a little bit about from the how the the way the healthcare world works. As soon as you start expanding those programs, then people find ways to charge, you know, $2000 every time somebody comes in. Uh, for their drug treatment to you know test them for drugs. I, I think that's throwing good money after bad. Well, I think you're making a really interesting point because I don't think what Nick gets is that there's a there the current drug treatment centers. He wants a massive expansion, and it is it is criminally stupid that only twenty percent of people who want drug treatment can get it, and it's even fewer within our prison system, which has its own weird compounding. But the private uh, and the near private public solutions for drug treatment have an 80% plus failure rate. So I think we do need more support there, but we need programs that work. And if you look around, you you, you can find them, but it's just not currently what we pay for. So we've got the odd, we, we pay a great deal of money to a small group of facilities that do not such a great job. And so we, th- th- that's clearly an area where we need to kind of reinvent the solutions. But look, the debts of despair are on the rise, David. You know, you've got uh, uh, if you look at working class whites, there's the category that gets a lot of attention because it supported citizen Trump and it, and it's where a lot of that resentment is catalyzed. Um, their life expectancy goes from 50 years old to nearly 80. If you look, look at it from 1900 to the end of the last century, and it's actually reversed. We've got life expectancy declining in working class whites and deaths of despair, opioid abuse, death by hanging and shooting, alcoholism, um, and those are the ones that are easy to measure, um, are increasing pretty radically. And that is the direct cause of that decline in mortality, which is defined by whether you have a a four-year college degree. So I also think that we've got to figure out a way in a very, very, that in, in many ways, it would sort of suggest that getting education right and getting wages right can have a bigger impact on healthcare in these communities than, you know, another healthcare policy recommendation from people like you and me. So John, since I bashed Europe before, I'll, I'll reward them here. So, you know, you say that having a college degree is a good thing. Part of the problem though with college in this country is it's very expensive and people come out with a lot of debt. And sometimes they come out with a lot of debt having wasted time and they're not improved. 
in some places like in Germany, they actually do more vocational training. And that might be a good idea. You know, there's a there's a need for tradespeople uh, here uh, in this country. There's a labor shortage there. So that might be an approach to take. You know, one thing that we haven't talked about so much is that this article is very much about President Biden and him being the right person for the job here. And I think I'll see what you say, but I, I agree uh, with that, you know, because no one can call him a, a crazy socialist or they can't. That's just not convincing when people do. He has certainly his own uh, upbringing uh, and hard times, both as a kid, you know, uh, with his dad being in this working class category that you describe, and certainly the tragedies that he's had in his own life. And he points out that, you know, Christoph points out that Biden didn't do stupid things like, you know, saying, you know, defund the police. He's got a much more nuanced uh, uh, view of it. Well, I, I think Biden's an interesting, a really interesting example because his father was a working class dad who did lose his job, had to travel around to find a job. But the jobs that his father found and lost are not the jobs that are available to someone without a college education today. And I think I think that's there. There, there there's a, a real challenge there. I mean, I I'm, what did you think of? Um, well, while we're while we're picking at Nick Kristoff, maybe we should get at what did you think of his big five ideas. Well, I think the big five is good, John, but then that's something from World War II or something like that. But the, uh, yeah, so I mean, so he had five things. Well, let's just pick them off one by one. So the first one was about a high quality early childhood and daycare program that's modeled on what they have for the U.S. military. Now, John, I'm a big, big uh, proponent of early childhood uh, interventions because I think in the first couple of years of life is really where equality of opportunity comes in. And so- Boom, I'm big on that one. Well, I, I think it's really hard to argue with babies wrapped in flags. And so that that one's I, I totally agree with you that that is the um probably the single greatest opportunity. And you see it in the universal sport for Head Start, but hard to agree with with to to disagree that a better start wouldn't be better for 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 kids. And no one can hold it against a some poor young kid who uh, wants access to early childhood education and daycare. But John, to be fair, yes, it's kind of motherhood and apple pie, almost literally, but uh, there hasn't been the support for it, actually. It hasn't It hasn't actually come through. Those things haven't been funded that well. So it would. it's not just sort of saying, yeah, we're in favor of that. No, it's, some, it's, a, it's a real commitment of resources. But it's one that I, it's really hard to get people to disagree with. And I love the fact that he brought in the, the vets. Well, what do you, what about, I mean, I'm pretty clear that the minimum wage needs to get to 15 or better, but, but, but why haven't you been more public about it? I mean, clearly Christoph thinks that a higher minimum wage would be helpful, but what do you think? You know, certainly John, I, I studied economics in, uh, in college, you know, not quite as a prestigious college as where you were. And you certainly said there's a trade-off, you know, if you have a higher minimum wage, then you're going to have more unemployment. I think what people have realized over time is that actually, first of all, the minimum wage is so low now, it doesn't, you can't really live on it. And if you have a higher wage, I think it's a good thing. It will bring people out of poverty. And also, you know what, if you pay, if you pay more for something, you respect it more. And the same is true for paying for people's labor. And so it's actually going to improve the dignity of work by employers having to think hard about how do I make sure I'm not wasting somebody's time. They have to be able to be effective if I'm paying them more. So I'm all in favor of it, John. Well, that other than correcting you for the false trade-off, that if you increase wages a little bit, you can't take costs out of elsewhere. I mean, it just, that's a, that's a silly point. But the other interesting point that he, or a simply narrow mechanical view of it, but he also talks about scaling up proven initiatives like Year Up, which are basically apprenticeship programs where people get a chance to 
who from a from a, a rough or incomplete educational background, the opportunity to kind of grow into a job at work. An apprenticeship is something that was true a couple of hundred years ago. You probably remember that, Dave, you know, during the Ben Franklin era that you grew up in. Um, and Europe, that's right, but we should invest in that. Yeah, I had I actually had an internship with Ben Franklin making kite strings. So it was. Uh, I'll tell you about that at another time. Now, the next one I already told you I think is a stupid idea, which is a huge expansion of drug treatment programs. You know, forget that. That's a big waste of money, and it's a further transfer uh, of funds into the uh, the healthcare industrial complex. I'm I'm against that, John. I'd spend the money if we could get it right, but in, in right now I agree with you. But what about that that um, that uh, yeah the Biden child allowance? You know, what is it about three hundred and fifty bucks? Per kid per month, that is an emergency part of the emergency stimulus of President Biden. I know that you like, you're kind of stingy actually with allowances for your kids, but what do you think of Biden's more generous investment? Well, so if it's $350 a month, I guess that's going to be $351 for my kids because, uh, yeah, they currently get about 25 cents a week. Um, You know, I think that this is actually, I don't think it's really a great idea, but I actually think this is an example of Biden being savvy. So rather than calling it like a transfer, you know, income transfer or something that looks like it's a socialistic thing, you focus on what's happening. You know, it's not a transfer from old to young or from, you know, rich to poor, but it's a childhood and it's allowance. It's a good thing. I think it's good, uh, good marketing. They should say a childhood allowance, just like the military gets an allowance. (laughs) And bandwidth for all, your favorite. I know that you're sort of a technophile. What did you think of that? Well, John, you know, so people compare it with like the, you know, the Tennessee Valley Authority rural electrification uh, project. The truth is, remember when people were saying, I got to get my son a computer or my daughter so that they can keep up in school? You know, bandwidth for all is just going to mean more looking at TikTok and Facebook and other nonsense. So I think dial up is good enough for people. You're too much of a cynic. I think it's essential that we have universal access to bandwidth. It's it's proven absolutely critical during COVID. Digital first is going to be more of an issue going forward. Everyone needs to have access to technology and bandwidth, particularly at a time when we're trying to turn around parts of these communities. And I think that what this comes down to, and I, it reminds me of uh, the, Saint, the sainted Senator Moynihan's point, that we need a national family policy. The breakdown in these communities, the breakdown of some of these core um, um, elements of citizenship, being able to be work, work a full 40 and get paid a living wage. That's, that's elemental, making sure people have the money to pay for their kids, um, that they've early childhood education. That's elementally about a family policy. And if we could kind of frame it that way, I think we'd, we'd get much more buy-in. Uh, we would even be able to get in a red state or blue state policy. It might actually be a, a red, white, blue policy. Well, John, speaking of bandwidth, I've about hit the cap, the length of this episode, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. I don't want uh, Comcast or anybody else to be, you know, T-Mobile to be charging anybody any overages here. So I'm going to say we wrap it up now, John, and say that's it for this edition of Care Talk. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks for listening.